the first time I saw that on a project, first thing was in 2014 in Florida, a developer scrapped their golf course plans and basically had phoned me in to basically do a concept plan. I was like, what? Why are you guys doing trails? He said, well, all our focus group said he said they want trails. And so we scrapped the golf course plans and I was like, holy crap, okay, all right. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 148, we have Jake Karsten the author of the latest mountain bike trail development book titled Mountain Bike Trail Development Guidelines for Successfully Managing the Process. As you will learn here, Jake is one of the most accomplished trail planners and designers in the trail industry, with experience from all over the world. This book is part of a three-part series here on Trail Effect, so you'll have the opportunity to learn pretty much everything about this book for yourself. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites, as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. The skid mark shorts and shenanigan pants are some of the latest kettle mountain apparel to drop, and it just so happens that both of these products have landed at my place. I will tell you that both products are very impressive, but I am most impressed with the Skidmark shorts as they fit so well and the fabric used makes for the best riding shorts I've ever experienced. As usual, you can grab yourself a 20% discount for the month of October on all Kettle Mountain apparel using the coupon code TRAIL20-OCT. Check the show notes for the 20% discount code as well. Also, don't forget that you can grab yourself 20% off on all Trail 1 components by using the code TRAILPOD. Again, this code is also in the show notes. Now on to the Trail Effect with Jake Karsten. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Jake Karsten. Jake is a trail planner and designer by trade. He is the founder of and owner of Dirt Dojo, which is based in Del Rio, Texas, on the border of Texas and Mexico, if I'm not mistaken. And Jake is the author of a fairly new, newly released book titled Mountain Bike Trail Development Guidelines for Successfully Managing the Process. And just to be clear, while Jake is the author, it is a partnership between a handful of different entities, such as the Minnesota, the Greater Minnesota Regional Parks and Trails Commission, Rock Solid Trail Contracting, IMBA, and others. How's it going today, Jake? Uh, it's going great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, of I'm course. Excited. It's, I, you know, like, as you know, my, I have a sincere passion in terms of trail planning and design and like getting the process right from the beginning. And so being able to have people like you on this podcast is super important because, you know, people always reach out saying, how do I get trails? And it's like, well, let's, what do we have to start with? Do you have a concept? Do you have permissions? Do you have like all the, all the, all the ingredients you need before you can actually put a shovel in the ground, right? Exactly. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of steps to get to that point for yeah. sure. If you're doing it properly. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about your backstory because people that may not be, that may not know who you are, 
uh, may not know that at one point you actually worked for Imba. You are a mountain bike skills instructor and that you have a pretty deep history in mountain biking in general. So let's, let's kind of get, get, bring people up to speed on that before we start talking about the book. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. So kind of like, so pre mountain bike world for me, um, I spent like 13 years as a process and training consultant, corporate consulting for IBM, you know, working with clients all over the country doing big rollouts and, um, it was kind of a fluke. The, my girlfriend and I, uh, Jenny Abraham at the time, applied for a trail care crew position, the Subaru, you know, the Subaru Outbacks that traveled around the country back in those times and uh, ended up miraculously getting hired. Uh, came in completely green um, with not really much background. I'd been to like a trail building school and I think we volunteered for like one trail day with our local club. But so that was kind of, we both quit our corporate jobs and sold everything and went on the road with Imba and um, did like 32 or 35 stops, um, you know, so 32 or 35 cities doing teaching trail schools, uh, doing presentations, working with local clubs. So that was really kind of, you know, kind of got thrown into the deep end, basically. And so after our tour was over, so Jenny went back to corporate, but I didn't want to go back to corporate. So I was like, let me just kind of it took some time off and decided to kind of stay. You know, I kept advocating for local projects and said, well, I'm doing this, you know, for free because I, I love this. Maybe I should see if I can actually get paid so I can make it sustainable. And that kind of led me to, so I worked, um, worked for SNS Trails for a couple of years for Ryan Spates. So did a lot of hand finishing behind the machines, did a lot of planning work with him. Um, he was the first person to really give me like machine time. So I'm um, on the mini skids and did actually consulting work for Trail Solutions back when Chris Bernhardt was still running things. So uh, when they would get concept plan contracts, I would go out, meet with clients, do the site assessments, gather all the data. You know, do the concepts, put together the reports. And so did a variety of those for trail solutions. So I've subcontracted for Tony Boone Trails, uh, Action Sports Design, my buddy Mike McIntyre, who's a skate park and BMX track architect designer that's kind of doing things in the mountain bike space now too. Uh, then Allegra, uh, spent a summer in Austria working for Allegra over, it's a Swiss company. And with six or seven other pro builders uh, at Soldum Bike Park in Austria, which was a super cool summer. Um, I was doing all hand building on a, Kind of historical trail where we were it was rideable 25 percent average grade but it was super fun but yeah a lot of sustainability issues so we were building features by hand with rock slings and grip hoists and doing all things kind of things to kind of make it more sustainable but still fun and maybe slow riders down and then i've also worked for alpine bike parks for six months for judd uh which was a, a super cool experience and then um after this, and it's kind of went on my own, which I've always had dirt dojo because I used it for my skills instruction. So I was like level one and two um, ICP certified back before it was even the EMBA program, back with Shams. And so I um, just kind of kept that name for my company. And after SNS went on my own, and so I was doing planning and design projects, started taking on build contracts. And so, you know, built trail systems, I've built mini bike parts, skills areas, pump tracks, dirt jumps, and was, uh, was able to like actually subcontract other builders coming into jobs. And so like uh, I worked with single track trails on a Utah job, um, brought in like Bruce Swan on a job, Dwayne Barati, formerly of Trek Trails on a local hand-built project here in Austin or in Austin where I was living at the time. STM trail building, I kind of made notes on who I'd worked with in the past, which was Scott Miller. Uh, and then do a bunch, I hired Dirk Candy Designs, Adam and Micah, who I'm sure you know, uh, numerous times. So love working with them. Craig Lee, community trail design. Um, he and I basically planned Split Rock Wild. So I brought him on, on that job. And then I brought him on, on a bike park build in Lakey, Texas as well. And um, Ken Barker brought him in on multiple projects, Iowa, Texas, 
um, which is backyard trails. And then of course, um, with Rock Solid, we were able to contract it with like Sentiers Boreales, Jerome Poland, Samuel Pichet for a big uh, slaughter pin bike park master plan that never got built, unfortunately, but uh, would have been a cool like big master training center project. So, and then just projects all over the country. And can we go a bit into some of the key projects I've been on that people may or may not know about? Oh, of course. That'd be awesome to bring some context to this. Okay. Um, so this wasn't really a project, but Back in 2016, I went to uh, Czech Republic and to meet Eric Bogan of Parkitect Pump Tracks. Got to tour his factory, got to work with them on the, the floor for ISPO Munich, which is the largest uh, sports and recreation trade show in Europe. So super cool experience. We got to set up the track, you know, meet all kinds of different parks people that were looking at doing tracks for their cities all over Europe. So super cool experience. Um, in Pleasant Grove, Utah, I had a contract there to plan and design a 10-mile trail system, which is right outside of Salt Lake. That was in 2015. Uh, and then in 2016, uh, they had trouble getting people to bid on the build. And so they contacted me and said, hey, can you do something? And I was like, well, I'm not actually, I'm not an expert machine operator. And so what they proposed was hiring 10 local kids to basically be my hand crew. And we'd spend the whole summer hand digging. And I was super reluctant. I'm like, okay, that sounds just Foolish. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm not as young as I used to be for sure, too. But um, I finally kind of acquiesced. And so we had 10 boys from like 19 to 21, put them through classroom training for trail building, field training. And then we basically built trail all summer long. And really, it was an eye-opening experience. I worked uh, Jason Cowley was, a Cowley was a local advocate, which he was incredibly helpful, helping with planning and design and just throughout the entire project. But on that one, I just, it was a while. I, I I was like, I don't really know how to calculate footage per day. So I figured 40 feet per day per person after doing a bunch of like, you know, looking at old projects and things. And that's what we ended up basically hitting was 40 foot a day per person. So 400 feet per day, typically. But it was, it was brutal. I threw out my back, cut hernia, ruptured a disc in my lower back, doing so much hand digging. So that was, but it was fun to actually get to see that through to completion. We brought in single track trails on that to do some machine building. And I ended up doing machine building for about a mile, mile and a half as well, too. Jacksonville Bike Park, Florida, 2017. Got to kind of master plan a bike park with jump lines, pump tracks uh, with Mike McIntyre, Action Sports Design. Uh, it never got built, but it was super cool to see it go through the CAD process. We did 3D models for the pump track designs too, which was you know, definitely kind of unique at the time for sure. Uh, and then Cloquet, Minnesota. Aaron Rodgers actually recommended me for a planning job on that because he was too busy. And so that kind of meant a lot to me because, you know, at the time I was still, I'd been in the business five years at that point. So six years, but it was cool having Aaron kind of suggest me for a job and go out and plan that and design that. And that one got built. I haven't had a chance to write it, but super cool there. And I mentioned Austria the whole summer in Austria, which was phenomenal. You know, we got to do, they were doing a crazy trail with steel cages off the side of a super steep mountain and flying in with helicopter, big loads of dirt and, with this huge, like 50 gallon metal drum, which was super dangerous. And so just kind of off the wall experience that summer, just seeing things I've never seen, like the spider excavators on the sides of the mountains and like big, big time engineering firms involved in some just crazy builds. So um, that was like really memorable and fun getting to work with, uh, who was this? So Zach Adams from Appalachian Trail, Craig Lee, Trimper, Drew Perkins, uh, Lucas Hausler, who was a local there. And then Chris and Leslie came out, came out, Chris Bernhardt. So a lot of people involved, which was a really, really neat summer. And 
uh, Allegra has really kind of just kind of exploded. They're kind of like a big advocacy, almost advocacy arm promoting things out there too. So, and then Split Rock Wild. So I actually planned that back in 2017. Adam Harji recommended me for the job and I brought in Craig on that one. And so it was really cool to be. So Nate Ide was my client at Lake County. And so it was really cool. That was their dojo project. So it was really cool to be at Rock Solid when it actually got built. And so to see, you know, Rock Solid get that contract and build something I'd planned, you know, at that point, it was probably four years before. So three or four years. And then Mount Fitzgerald was real memorable. That was in uh, Springdale. That was the first project I planned with Aaron. And so my first kind of rock solid project. So that was super memorable. And then Centennial Park, uh, which is all the UCI, UCI um, XC and cyclocross stuff. I was involved in that kind of initially and kind of faded out towards the end once it got kind of ramped up. And that was really kind of Aaron's baby because that was there was a lot of that was a major, <laughs> a major project. It was a creative creativity execution, all that. So and then Mountain Evo State Park, um, which some folks may know up in Russellville, 25 miles. So I was I was the planner on that. Field designed probably ninety percent of that. Uh, Matt Torvin did some design work out there too. On can't think of the name of the loop, but the one that's the big shuttle kind of run that big loop. And so that was a really rewarding but really really challenging project trying to flag out there in that terrain. And um, it's three thousand acres, super intense. So, but it was a really memorable project. And then getting to see everything executed by the Rock Solid crews, which was the, you know, the crews just hit it out of the park. It's just you, know, you can have a vision, do a great plan, do a great design, but if it's not executed well, right, you know, it's just not going to be the same. And those guys just, they were constantly amazing me doing things I would never expect and be surprised on, which was super cool. Devil's Den State Park, that was, did a lot of the planning on that. And Kyle McGurk and I basically worked heavily on that. And then him and some guys went out and flagged it. So the new expansion for that, that was memorable too. The Slaughter Pin Bike Park Project, which uh, I don't know if it'll ever get built, but it was really cool because we collaborated with um, I had three different training uh, skills instructors, subcontractors on that. We were all collaborating on doing a true training center so that basically someone could just go out and practice. Or basically, if you were an instructor, you could take a student out or you could have clinics or camps, do big summer camps and have, you know, multiple types of groups out there doing the training events. And so everything was going to be designed so that you'd have all the features suitable for all the skills, the way they teach them through the ICP program. But then also places for instructors to stand, places for people to put their bikes, thinking about the whole circulation and flow of, you know, how do you do this, but also not disrupt other riders. And so really hope to see something like that come to fruition. I'm working on some things right now where I think we can include that. So I'll talk about those later. But um, And then Mount Magazine, which never got built either, which is most elevation in Arkansas, going to be 150 plus miles, 30,000 acres, just just a crazy, crazy park. It's federal. Agencies are involved, so I think that's going to what slowed that down. Um, then currently working on five bike park and trail projects in San Antonio for the city of San Antonio. Uh, one's a cyclocross project, two bike park projects where we're doing planning jump lines and skills areas, which the skills areas will kind of conform to the ICP stuff as well too. And a couple of trail projects and doing a concept plan for developer in Austin, two thousand acres, forty five hundred platted homes. Uh, unfortunately, we're kind of coming in after everything's platted. So I'm kind of limited on what I can do, but so that's kind of, those are kind of probably the project highlights I would say for kind of my past. And um, yeah. That's a pretty broad past. <laughs> I yeah, don't know if yes. everyone's going to be able to process <laughs> all that because you just threw out a ton of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been, it's been a super cool ride. I mean, 
yeah, not really knowing what to expect from one week to the next or one year to the next and seeing so many things evolve in the industry. Like Mike McIntyre and I, even back, I did some projects, sub-consulted for him on some projects back in 2017 uh, when he beat us for a bid. I was working for Alpine Bike Parks and they beat us out on a job in Austin, which I was like, who is this Fantech company? <laughs> and we've been talking about things for years that we'd love to do in the bike park space that just hasn't been really feasible because it hasn't really taken off like it's starting to now. So now that bike parks are becoming more of an accepted kind of playground model, for lack of a better word, um, there's a lot of things we can do to kind of advance and evolve that in terms of structures and materials and you know stepping that kind of level up by having architects and engineers involved. So and Mike's background is really cool for that, you know, been designing building skate parks for 20 plus years. The exclusive planner designer or architect for USA BMX does all their big you know facilities. So having that experience and applying it to the mountain bike space has been super cool. I'm looking forward to some some really cool things we can do with that too. So well, I think we we've established your authority as an author. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely had a lot of there was a lot of other contributors on the book too, and lots of lots of reviewing and editing with people, lots of negotiating over topics which were maybe a little, you know, a little squirrely. But so, but yeah, definitely it was a heavy lift for sure. So yeah, so what we're talking about is the uh, the book titled Mountain Bike Trail Development Guidelines for Successfully Managing the Process, and you know this book serves a couple different things. Most importantly, I think it serves as a guide for for many people, especially people that may not be really well versed in the process of what it takes to get a mountain bike trail or mountain bike trail systems from, hey, I got this idea to how do we get it built, right? And that could be anybody within a, a government agency to a local advocacy, you know, club to somebody that, you know, maybe continues to use it as a reference because there's so much knowledge in it. Let's get into the backstory of how this book came to be. And, and the need for it and they ask for it. Sure. Yeah. So it's actually a really, really cool story. So really the idea behind this book, the vision for this book came from Renee Matson. She's the executive director for the Greater Minnesota Regional Parks and Trails Commission. And so her agency is basically tasked with administering all the tax dollars that they get in Minnesota to apply to park and trail projects, which is phenomenal, right? In the first place, having that kind of pool of resources locally. And so, but what they were finding was they were having trouble getting you know, parks people in different towns to apply for these the grants to get these funds. And then the ones that did apply and were awarded, they were having issues with people converting the idea to actually getting trail on the ground, good trail on the ground, and just struggling with the process. And so, you know, she recognized the need for something to bridge that gap. And so that's really, you know, when she reached out to us at Rock Solid, um, it's time I was running planning and design. And um, we were like, this is, isn't really what we do, but... <laughs> But we, you know, Aaron, and you know, definitely had the foresight to be like, this is something very much needed, right, in this space. And so, you know, and Aaron's always something I've always liked about Aaron. He's always looking for ways to try to evolve and improve the industry as a whole, and kind of you know raise the level of the game. And so we took it on, and I think not really realizing how big of a deal it was going to become in terms of just the sheer, you know, scope and the way the workload kind of just expanded. But uh, that kind of made sense once we got into it. But yeah, so that was kind of what really kicked it off. And that kind of started the process. It took right around four years working on it off and on. Because, of course, I was still, you know, selling and planning and designing at Rock Solid. So it's not like we could just stop or drop everything and do that full time. So um, it was a 
lot to juggle at times for sure. So that's kind of the backstory to how it got started. Yeah. So when when we got in, when you got into writing the book, what are some key benchmark topics that like really stuck out initially that you knew needed to be in, included? And then with that, I'm sure some things evolved into. Oh yeah, if we have this, we got to have this also to add to that or add to this. Yeah. So that was actually really one of the most difficult things was determining you know who our target target audience was going to be, and then kind of what like you mentioned what we wanted to actually convey to them, and so. That took us a while. And so Renee actually formed a committee. Uh, I printed this out so I'd have reference um, of other agencies in Minnesota that were part of this committee to help kind of um, address these decisions and make these kind of, you know, define these topics. And so that we had, I'll go through this, Trent Luger from Minnesota DNR, who's, you know, avid, avid mountain bike planner for, for the DNR. Um, Kathy Bergen from GMRPTC, which is Greater Minnesota Regional Parks and Trails Commission. Uh, Tim Kennedy, one of their commissioners, uh, Brian Anderson from Minnesota Department of Transportation, Nate Ide, right, Lake County Land Commissioner. So, you know, him and David are doing a lot of great stuff up there. And then we had Jim Schoberg from Duluth, right, Senior Parks Planner. Spent a lot of time talking to Jim, Trent, um, as well, for sure, basically, because they're really deep into what's happening on the ground and what the needs are as professional park planners when it comes to trail projects. So. Um, then, of course, Renee and, her, and Joe, her, which was her assistant plan coordinator. So that kind of made up our committee. And so we met a few times and went through numerous rounds of table of content reviews to figure out what to do. Because we talked about things like you know, environmental and permitting and you know, things which were, which were problematic for really for everyone. But we ended up, even though we covered kind of environmental and permitting really lightly, we really decided to focus on things that were specific to mountain biking. And that was actually one of the Hardest first decisions was, do we make this solely about mountain biking or is it about natural surface trail projects? And so it was actually a lot of discussion. We finally came to the, to the conclusion, like we need to make, make it very specific to mountain biking. So it's as targeted as possible, right? Instead of trying to be kind of all things to natural surface trails, which, which I'm glad we did because it allowed us to really just keep it, you know, sharply pointed towards that. So, but really, you know, the assessing planning at the high level designing contracting, right? Contracting is always a problem. And I'm seeing even more problems nowadays. Like now that I'm in Del Rio, I'm trying to advocate for trails, uh, which we can maybe talk about more later, but the whole process of trying to get cities on board and going through like public bid and dealing with all the different labyrinths labyrinths that they have is super challenging. And even like uh, Rich Edwards, right? Director of, of Construction for Trail Solutions, who now is at West Virginia University, he and, I, he and I were talking. He's like, man, this is a nightmare. <laughs> Trying to put together RFPs because there's, there's certain things missing in our industry that, that really make it difficult. Like we don't have construction typicals for all the different situations you can just drag and drop into an RFP, right? So for whether it's for a berm, a tabletop, or a rock garden, I mean, some of that stuff exists, but we, re- we really need that across all of these elements. Things like borrow pits, right? Natural is naturalizing disturbed soil, like we really should have a CD for each and every one of these things so that land managers can just drop these in. Then it also sets a standard for the builders. Like, this is what we expect it to at least look like in general, you know. And so, hopefully, that stuff is actually coming. We're, we're talking about doing that stuff for additions to the book. So, but those are a lot of the things we talked about, but we needed to focus it really on just core process, which was assessing, planning, designing, contracting, building, and so forth. So, did that kind of answer the question or did I 
veer off that topic a bit. No, that's good. And we're gonna veer we're gonna we're gonna stay on that topic and maybe veer off the book and speak more broadly about the industry right now because one of the topics that continually comes up through this podcast is the professionalization of the trail industry. And we're gonna we're gonna stick with like the book, we're gonna stick to mountain biking. As projects start becoming more accepted and, and trails are are an amenity that we see in, you know, especially in government through government agencies, just like you'd see a I'll, I'll use the word pickleball court because uh, that's always <laughs> something that we like to poke fun at um, within this podcast. Uh, I love pickleball. So. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's funny though because like it just it seems to it seems to come up pretty regularly. But as we as we ta- as we professionalize the industry more, you know, and I've had these conversations both off the air and on the air with like Greg Mazu, for example, from Single Track Trails. You know, for us to be taken seriously, we need to look and act like any other consulting firm or professional organization, whether that's civil engineering, you know, and, and then, and, and regular, you know, building architects and, and all the things that regular government agencies deal with on a daily basis, whether it's, I want to get this playground designed, where do I go? What does that look like? You know, in those industries having construction details, just like you spoke of, like, how, how do you see, you know, you just dove into that topic. So I want to stay on that topic a little bit more. Like, how do you see that evolving or where would you like to see it go? more specifically, because I do think that's a discussion that we need to continue to have openly in the industry. Yeah. So that's a, it's a big topic too. There's a lot of kind of avenues we could go down on that. I guess the first place I'll start is, you know, really from the municipal perspective, right? They're doing, they're living in the A&E world, right? Architecture and engineering world. So that's what they're used to. They're used to concept plans, design, you know, design drawings and CDs, right? Construction documents. And so I think we need to get there. And so trail projects are a little bit different, right? You can still have CDs, but you, we're not going to do like a CD for every single foot of trail, right? It's just not, not feasible. But, you know, as a whole, and I think the industry is moving there. And, you know, like, ton of credit to Mike Repiak. I mean, he, I think, is really kind of setting the standard by basically, you know, he's a landscape architect, right? Has a background in resort planning um, for SE Group, I think it was. He's been hiring landscape architects, and I think he's got six or seven people on staff now. And so really just bringing that skill set so people with those backgrounds and those degrees that are experienced in things like CAD and GIS, uh, Illustrator, InDesign, Civil 3D, right? You know, that's really, if I knew I was going to be in the trail building world, like when I was going to college, I would have totally gone to landscape architecture school because you get all of the software tools you need and all that kind of background, as well as that professional aspect of, you know, how do we plan spaces? And so for me, the big eye-opener was the first time I worked with Mike McIntyre back in 2015, maybe. We were basically at Stantec's office. We had these two-by-three-foot blueprints out, and we're using trees, showing how to use tracing paper and scale rulers and all this stuff as we're drawing stuff and talking about circulation and you know, capacity and all the different topics that architects deal with on an everyday basis to make sure that a site works and flows well, which kind of, the time blew my mind because it's not like we do concept plans for trail routes and trail loops and how they all connect, you know, and we're thinking about, so that really also changed how I looked at trails too, in terms of how are people going to circulate through the system? You know, where are the kind of the, the bottleneck points, you know, and try to minimize those and things like that. So that really opened my mind and because we tend to have work. Our industry is very myopic, as you probably know, right? We're really super hyper-focused on the trail and the bike park elements everything else outside of that. And it's just kind of the nature, I guess, of where the industry's grown. But where I think it needs to go is having more of that perspective in it, which is so it's great to see 
more landscape architects coming into the business and actually you know, getting formally trained through trail solutions and other groups. So that I think is super important for sure. Yeah. And then, and then like a certification path, right. For trail building, that's, that's a whole nother big challenge. And it's, I think there's a couple of groups trying to do something about that. Like the Walton Family Foundation, West Virginia University, PTBA. It'd be great if, you know, PTBA is awesome. It would just be great if they could find some sort of cool funding source to have multiple full-time staff. It's amazing what they do considering they don't really have, I don't think they have any paid staff. But, you know, to really compete, like you mentioned, and be industry professionals having a certification path for builders to go through, whether it's for handwork or whether it's excavator operator, you know, or things like that would be really like, so another, I'll give you an example. So when we were in Austria, um, they were basically, were having the guys train two Austrian excavator operators who actually literally, they have excavator school, you know, in Europe, you know, and so that's a formal thing. You go to like construction school and become an operator. It's like a discipline. And so it was kind of mind blowing. We're like, holy crap. Okay. You know, these aren't just guys that like to, to ride. So learn how to, you know, operate an excavator. Um, and we were really kind of, like, man, do you think they're going to do well? Or are they going to get it? Because they weren't riders either. And so it was really cool to watch that process unfold for the summer and to see these guys start to get it. They ended up buying bikes and started riding. And, you know, but they have a track for that, you know, in Europe, you know, different countries. That's, you know, you can go to school to be like, instead of being a plumber, you can be an excavator operator, right? And so, I mean, maybe we have that, but we really, if we had some path like that, that was legitimate for trail building, they really focused on mountain bike trails because. If you know mountain bike trails, you can build hiking trails, no problem, right? Mountain biking trails are just so much more complex than just a straight hiking trail. So that's really, we could make that happen. It would just, I think it would exponentially improve the industry in terms of just overall execution and just perception from the outside world too. Yeah. And, you know, to my knowledge, and it's, it is limited, I will say, I don't obviously know everything nobody does. The only type of excavating excavator schools or like any kind of equipment schools that I'm really aware of. I mean, sometimes you get them at like local tech schools and stuff like that, but really it's offered through like operators, like engineer, engineer operators unions, you know, like, I'm, you know, and that's for like road building and, 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 and like other types of infrastructure, like utility type infrastructure where there's a union component to it. And so they have training paths within that, you know, within that specific organization. Like I know on a job I was on, a DOT job back in the day, you know, we had a really skilled operator on on this specific job that I'm thinking of. And he came from operating uh, excavators and building golf courses. Oh, okay, cool. You know what I mean? And so he got, he he became very good at finely tuning the ground, we'll say, because of what was required <laughs> uh, of him at a golf course. And that's, I would say is sort of similar to our world. Yeah. I would imagine, right. Because that's very, I mean, very precise, right. When you're planning golf courses, there's a lot of precision to length, distance, widths, you know, placement, I mean, art form too, right. That's, that's the one big challenge too about our industry is it's not, you know, it's definitely a mix of art and science, right. And the art part is what makes it hard to contract, you know, because and that's what we try to address in the book too, is how do you qualify contractors? Uh, because not everyone, you know, someone may be a trail builder, but they may not be able to build jump lines or be good at it, or maybe not do pump tracks or be good at that. And so, you know, and that's been a challenge in our industry for a long time is how do you vet or set up contracts to basically prevent 
someone who's not qualified for doing the job, being on the job, right? And now with our bigger budgets, bigger, broader jobs where you're doing numerous trail types and bike park elements, you know, there's not a lot of firms that are experts in all those. And so you may have to contract with three, four different firms, right? If you want the best, the best experts building each of those sections where they, you know, are kind of masters of their craft, right? A lot of challenges. It's really, really hard. Like it's like you're building a house, you know, you hire, you hire a, a framer, right? Hire someone doing brickwork, a roofer, all pretty straightforward. You know, there, there's obviously artistic elements to building a house too. And sometimes, but all the defined in the CDs for the house, right? We just don't, just not possible really in our world with the scale trying to do that for a 10 mile trail system. You just couldn't have every foot. You wouldn't want every foot of that. There needs to be a lot of interpretation in the field available to you, the, the the builders, but we also need to have frame expectations strongly enough to where someone who's not a mountain bike person can hold them accountable in their building that, hey, they're building what um, we're expecting you to build based on what was in the plans, right? And so being able to frame that clearly enough to where the builders understand what's expected, you know, the land manager understands what they're looking for, and they can actually in the field follow up and ask questions. And so there's we still have a ways to go. Like CDs for typicals would be phenomenal. Having a full library that was publicly accessible for all of us because it would just really just, and he would level the game a whole lot in terms of it would bring the skill set up of you know newer builders. Um, and it would really bring the skill set of the landmanders up in terms of having something to better hold builders accountable. So I think we would all benefit from that. And I think there's other folks that agree. And so hopefully uh, Renee is, that's that's definitely on the, the high list of things we want to add into the next rounds for this book. So, well, it's interesting because you know some of the you know construction details that you see in plans these days literally came about from the original Imbus guide to building <laughs> yep. suite single track, right? Which I think came yep. out in 2007, if I'm not mistaken. I literally have that in front of me, so I should be able to find it somewhere. Oh, 2004, copyright 2004. 2004. I was wondering about that the other day because that's that's. So we're 20 years, almost 20 years out from that first publication. Yeah. So yeah, and it's still it's still probably the it's still the most referenced book in contracts as well, too. Like everyone references it in RFPs or contracts that go out that all trails will be built to the solution, you know, to the spec. Well, it's not really a specification, but to the kind of guidelines in the trail solutions book, right? So yeah. Hey, when this book first came on my radar, it was prior to it being released through a conversation I had with Mike Repiak and the way he kind of explained this book to me was like the next version of the original Invitrail Solutions book to kind of like bring, you know, bring what we've learned since 2004 and even pre 2004, because honestly, if it's, if it's published in 2004, it's not 2000, it's material that was, you know, quantified prior to 2004. Right. Yep. Yeah. Actually that's, so that's actually a good kind of segue into, cause we've talked about like, how do you, how, can Imba position this book, right? Because we didn't really go into this with that thought process because, right, Imba wasn't a partner initially. And so, I mean, so what we've talked about is kind of like the evolution of, say, a combination of the Trail Solutions book and the Managing Mountain Biking book. Um, but it also has elements, like there's literally elements where we've pulled it directly in from the Guide to Quality Trail Experiences, which is the Imba BLM publication, which had some, you know, some great, uh, some great things in it, which, yep, exactly. I've got it on my desk too. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Doss was just showing me his copy. So yeah, so a lot of great content. And so there's sections where we actually pulled right from that and referenced it because it's, you know, such a good resource as well too. But 
No, I just kind of ties back to something you asked earlier about like the target for this. And so really with Renee's problem specifically with Minnesota, you know, was how do we basically get people who know that we had to make the assumption that we're going to work with people that know nothing about mountain biking. They may be a parks planner. That's like, we need to build mountain bike trails. And like, I don't know what mountain biking is. And so that kind of also led into why we went into some background about bike types, trail types. We were like, okay, we've got to, we can't defer someone to another book, you know, and, and that's constantly changing. So that's why we also decided to go into that background. A little bit of the history of mountain biking, but really trail types, bike types, rider types. Um, and that's going to obviously evolve. And that was a really tricky area to pin down. I don't feel like it's ever going to be pinned down, but we wanted to get something at least as a guideline so that municipal park planners can have at least a baseline understanding, which is also why we made, we knew it needed to be super photo heavy because with the intention of someone potentially needing to manage this process that knows nothing about mountain biking, there's just no way in words you can convey a lot of the stuff that we do, um, especially with features and things. So that's why photo curation was was a beast on this project for sure. So many, many thanks to like Eli Glyson, Chris, uh, Chris Bear, and Mike, Chris Cabrera. Yeah. So a lot of their photos are in here. Uh, Mike Repiak really saved the day too. And when Emma decided they wanted to be a partner on the book, he has a you know huge treasure trove of photos because he travels all over, right? He's always capturing things. So he was able to supply a lot of photos to really kind of round out, you know, cause it was very rock solid heavy for sure in the beginning. Uh, but with the Ember partnership, we wanted to kind of show a much a broader picture, which is so we've also got a lot of photos from like Adam Bucksworth, Pathfinder, right? Um, uh, Chad Landowski, uh, Landowski Trailworks. And um, so, yeah, we wanted to show that. But yeah, presenting all that was definitely a challenge. And so, but for me being process oriented as well, like you mentioned, you're a very process driven guy. Like my past, past life as a consultant for process and training, right? Was we need to, have this also be simple and that's why we have quick reference guides in the back with like you know one or two pages which basically summarizes really the entire process so that you could sit down with someone and just go through that one or two page and then you've basically conveyed the really kind of the material elements of what the whole process is you know and our goal with that is to hopefully get everyone using the same language and kind of following the same general process so that as we all start talking right there's continuity in our language and our conversations right which is definitely a struggle now still, right? Someone talking about a flow trail may have a different vision than someone else. And which is also why we didn't really kind of excluded the flow trail language because it really, in our industry, right? You have a very specific image of it's a six foot wide gravity fed trail, right? Which is why we went with flowy, which I'm surprised I haven't gotten more flack or pushback on the term flowy instead of flow trail, but we wanted to really kind of describe the characteristic and not something that gave the perception of a whole trail experience. And so, because then those, as you know now, right, everything's merging, you know, a big full-on flow trail, not that they're boring, but right, but having that mix of technical and drops and other elements, you know, the diversity of a trail experience, right, creates a, can create a better whole experience. And so, you see a lot of that merging too. So, I feel like I'm getting off topic or rambling a bit, so I'll turn it back to you. (laughs) Well, that's the whole point of a podcast and the beauty of it is you can ramble. Awesome. Well, I can definitely do that. So. Well, you just talked about process and, and kind of like, so this, the, the, the theme that I keep seeing in this book, which is super important. And I'm very grateful that you added the eighth point of this theme. There are basically eight different topics I'm going to say, and that's assess, plan, design, contract, build, promote, and maintain. And then the eighth one being evolve. 
And I'm so glad you threw Evolve in there because that means we're never done. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, and so actually, so the one great thing, so when, so working for Rock Solid for four and a half years, you know, I would probably say 75% of all my work was Arkansas based, right? And so it was really great to see a lot of that firsthand because they, you know, they obviously have the money to do this, but continually evolving, like the trail section is not working or it's just kind of like it doesn't, it's not really hitting with the, with the locals, right? They have no problem coming in and rebuilding something or, you know, and switching things around or if you know, they're tracking wrecks and injuries, right? And so they're going out rebuilding stuff if something's having, if certain features are causing too many injuries. And so, you know, the evolution is super, super key. And a lot of cities, right, can't plan for that or fund that as well as like Arkansas can. So that's why, you know, the whole process is super critical and having really good talented builders do your project so that you minimize problems that have to basically be addressed later, right? So, which is another big driver in the book is to really help them select vendors that are appropriate for their jobs and that have that skill set. So, when you just brought up a point that I wasn't, that I didn't think about for this interview, but you know, if you look at places like, we'll say Pink Bike or listen to other podcasts, like sometimes Bentonville specifically, but more broadly, like Arkansas kind of gets it. I mean, they get like, oh, well, how can it really be the mountain bike capital of the world? And, and I think some of the, some of the, the, I think the main thing that people are missing the point of is that what's happening in Arkansas is allowing the entire field of trail building to evolve because it is really in some ways a big experiment, you know? And so you can try, you can try it here. And if it doesn't work, you can try it a different way. And, and then the amount of like reps that a builder gets or the reps that a planner gets or the reps that anyone in any certain aspect of this industry can get in Arkansas, but then take anywhere in the world and implement once it has been successful, like it's unquantifiable. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. I mean, totally. So that's been a great thing too, is because, and some people may not realize this, especially if you haven't been to Arkansas is, you know, they're not just pouring money into mountain bike trails and bike park like things. It's paved hiking bike infrastructure. It's art installations. It's, you know, museums, it's kids, you know, interactive play zones and all along the greenway. And so, you know, they're really taking a holistic, you know, A&E approach, you know, architectural engineering approaches, which basically, you know, broad range of services for the community, but bringing in, you know, high level talent to do that too. So, so like we, when we were planning Slaughter Pen Bike Park, it was great because we got to work with Huff Design, which is a really cool design firm, you know, in Arkansas, Missouri. And then uh, Studio Brian Haynes, who's a big landscape architect name out of the Northeast. and so. You know, coming up with super cool wild covered structures for the big skill zones areas that we had. And so getting them to see, you know, different kind of designed ideas, things that weren't just typical like roof designs, right? Or shade structure designs. Um, and so that was actually the project where the castle came about as well, too. So, you know, Aaron had the idea for doing a castle start hill, and that's kind of what started that whole thing in Slaughter Pen. Um, and so, you know, Derek, Derek Laheka, and then of course, um, Samuel Pichet from Sick Theaters both kind of did concepts and then the client ended up picking one and basically rolling with it. And so it was really cool to see that, you know, that's kind of the one piece of the whole bike park that really kind of came to fruition, that and the kind of gravity lines off of that, the gravity logic did. So, yeah, that's like, you know, it's really great that they're willing to invest in those things, kind of, you know, like you said, elevate that game. So other places have a kind of a model to look to of things that you can do if you kind of have the vision and the budget, right? And so, and yeah, when the whole mountain biking capital of the world, when we first heard that, I mean, we probably kind of rolled our eyes a bit, but you know, after thinking about it, yeah, I mean, it's hard to find a place that's done as much of a holistic approach 
to building an entire community where mountain biking is a core solid feature, right? I mean, it's a part of much something much broader, but the way they, you know, I mean, it's what speaks volumes are all the people moving there, all the businesses opening up, right? Fox just opened a flagship store there, which is, you know, kind of a probably unheard of. Canyon bikes opened, opened up a big like demo center. I mean, and these kinds of companies aren't going to do that unless there's some serious infrastructure there that not just supports having a fun trail ride, but everything else that goes with that, right? You know, coffee shops and craft beer bars and, you know, paved trails and things for their kids to do and families to do. And so that's where I think they're really hitting the home run is it's for families, right? You know, it's not just trails and it's not just agro trails. You know, it's trying to build things for the entire family and community to enjoy, even if you don't bike, right? So, yeah, Specialized has their experience center there now as well. Oh, man. In the yeah. So it seems like every week I hear about in the, a new in company the bike building. In the bike so, building. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's wild. So, I mean, it's definitely, which I think it's, it's great that they do trail labs there. It's a perfect place because every, there's so many things that are so close that you could walk or ride to. You know, without being in a big city where you have to maybe drive to different things, it really shows that interconnectivity of where you're they're connecting neighborhoods, right? So for sure. Well, now that the book is live, it went live. I want to say, I'm going to say May 15th was the press release. There's a, there's another reason why I know that date, but we're going to say May 15th, <laughs> where you had the press release in Minnesota. You know, you were there. I I believe were you there? I I know rocks. I know yeah, Aaron I was, was there. there for Rock Solid. Mike Repiak was there. Obviously, all the the staff from Minnesota was there, but now that it's live, what's the reception been? What's some of the feedback you've been getting on it, and how's how's it been? So that's five or six months ago now, five months ago, four months ago. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, I guess I kind of live a bit in a bubble too. I really haven't gotten the people that you know I've had feedback from. Or I'll say they think it's great, they think it's awesome, but it's been really kind of general, like that. I you know I haven't really I haven't heard any any negative critiques, um, other than someone wanting to see more or actual kind of like CD type stuff in terms of like um, typicals, right? Um, but just not something we could have done for this round. But so I actually would love to to hear more responses from people. I think also too, maybe maybe a lot of people haven't gotten through it because it's big, right? I mean, it's <laughs> I mean it's a lot of it's a lot of content to get through too. So so I really don't know as a whole, other than the people that I've talked to think it's great and you know seem to appreciate the contents there. So I would love to hear what you hear from other folks too when, when you talk to people that have gone through it. So, Yeah. And I guess since we're talking about that, we should probably mention that you can get it online as a, as a PDF, a downloadable, a downloadable PDF for free, but then you can also buy the hard copy. I want to say through Barnes and Noble maybe, but you'd know better. It's for sure available online yep. as a hard copy in various places. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of ways to get it. So basically, so the great thing is Renee's mission was to have this available to everyone free, basically, at least free for like online versions. So there's, you can download a PDF version. Uh, you can do a, like an online viewer version where you can just view it online, like a magazine. And then if you want to purchase a hard copy, um, Amazon and Barnes and Nobles both carry it. And so there is a difference. So if you get it from Amazon or Barnes and Noble, um, Renee may come in for mentioning this, but there's, it's the book style version, like the Trail Solutions books and the previous Inbo books, where it's, where it's a bound book, like, you know, typical book. Um, and the paper is a little bit different. It's kind of more paper, traditional paper stock, which is good for writing on because Inbo got a lot of feedback from previous books that they love the books, but because of the glossy pages, which is great for photos, really hard to write and make notes on because a lot of people like take tons of notes in their old Trail Solutions books. And so they did it with a more pen friendly 
kind of paper, which is great for that, but it also kind of dulls the photos a little bit. So Renee does, Renee is producing spiral bound versions, which are full color glossy, which really kind of do the photos justice, but also probably not as easy to write on. Yep. Yep. You've got it. <laughs> so yeah. So Josh is holding up his copy. Um, and I like that the spiral, the spiral bound is orange too, right? Which really kind of, you know, kind of a tribute to rock solid for sure. And so she's done a run of those and selling those for 25 bucks a piece, but she's also giving them out to different agencies and things. So if there's agencies, oh, she may kill me for this, but there's agencies that want that, or people really want to spiral bound with more glossy photos. She has them. And so she's not really equipped to be taking like hundreds of orders. So, um, you know, cause there, so yeah, so I actually have both. I ordered one from BNN, uh, Barnes and Noble because I wanted both of course. And so I think they both have their place. So I got my original copy directly through Aaron at rock solid. Oh, cool. He literally left that press conference and came to the project we were on which was in Northern oh, Wisconsin, nice. you know? And so it was like the day that I got it, the day of the press conference, actually like that night. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. That was the first run, print run. So. Yeah. And, and then I was out visiting a client and she was asking a lot of questions and I'm like, I'm looking at this book going, you just need this. <laughs> I get that you've hired us to help you guide you through this process, but then mm -hmm. this is a good supplement to that guide, especially for when like, you know, the planner designer isn't actually there to answer questions for you. You can show them the book, you know, whether that's, you know, a parks director or just a constituent or whatever, whoever it is you're trying to explain something to, right? Yeah. So that's actually, so that's actually a great kind of topic because like I didn't, and I think I'm still going to learn different ways that I can leverage this book as a consultant, right? Because so, so I'm working with, you know, Mike of Action Sport Design on like five different bike trail park projects in San Antonio. And so we had to do a community update meeting to the community because there was a lot of a lot of concern by the local advocates and things like that about what was going to happen and you know who was involved in the project do they know what they're doing and so forth and so we had to put together a presentation to kind of basically introduce who we were what our backgrounds were and also you know give a brief update on the projects that were in play and so what we ended up doing is literally doing screen grabs right from the book like i was doing screen grabs of the full pages and so i'm like i don't in the past like all my years in this business since 2011 having to basically find photos and grab it images of like, you know, rock garden or trail types and pull that together. But now that it's all in the book, you know, I was like, so Mike, let's just screen grab out of the book. So we were and just dropping those into our slides. And it, I mean, it saved a ton of time and it keeps the communication consistent with the clients to align with the book, right. To ensure we're not getting kind of off track. So, um, so I foresee using it a lot like that, basically where instead of reproducing that kind of content, being able to just drag and drop it in, in a lot of cases, to convey that to clients and it worked really well for that session. And so um, I'm sure I'll find more ways to, to leverage the book going forward too. So if you're other people find creative ways to leverage it in these kinds of situations, I'm always all ears. So let me know. Well, and another topic I'd, I'd sent to you and you've kind of peppered, peppered this in through the whole conversation, but that is looking back, you know, what are the things you would add or what do you think the next evolution of this book would be? Um, well, yeah, so we have actually, I mean, that's already kind of in progress and it's really going to be additions to the appendix. And so um, the RFP process for one is, is definitely in there. And what was the other one? So the CDs were kind of like third on the list, but it's at the very, you know, it's up there with those like RFP process and the contracting process, because that's so problematic, especially as people have gotten on the other side of that equation, like Rich Edwards, you know, like, I mean, 
couldn't really ask for someone like more experienced than Rich Edwards when it comes to contracting with trail projects. But now that he's on that side of the house where he's trying to contract other people instead of being the one being contracted, you know, he's seeing also what I'm seeing in Del Rio is, oh man, this is kind of a nightmare if you're a, you know, if you're a parks person and you're trying to put together an RFP because there's so much that needs to be addressed in more detail. So we talked about going into more detail about architects and engineers and how kind of our trail industry kind of fits in with their world. And so that's the other kind of key part of that RFPs and then really how basically you know, trail projects kind of should fit or blend into the A&E world. And so those are kind of the two main things. And then the construction typicals, which would be a little bit of a lift too. But so for that, we envision like CDs where you've got like a plan view and elevation views of just use a berm, for example, with a typical berm and, you know, maybe what the, um, the backs, you know, potential back slope should be, how they should be compacted, what the apron should be like minimum width, you know, and, with some guidelines, right? Because it's always going to be dependent in the field. Like if you're on a 60% side slope versus if you're on a 20%, you know, metal hillside, but just so that there are some standard images and language around all the different kinds of feature, which would really get us all consistent and just help us keep each other accountable. Whether you're, you know, you're a municipal person trying to make sure your project gets executed the way it's envisioned, or you're, you know, especially like new builders coming up, having those, will be great because then they have a model to follow and it's not just like what they're seeing in a magazine or something like that. It's like, hey, these are kind of best practices around this. And here's kind of why we do it too, right? Like sculpted jumps look great in magazines, but they're, you know, they're a maintenance nightmare. I mean, and not to mention there's also, you know, risk involved with there's no runoff area. I mean, you know, so, um, which is why we, you know, like aprons and like mellow back slopes and side slopes and things like that. So... I mean, that's all super important stuff. And as you know, we, we run into that almost daily in this world, right? And how to, how do you convey that to clients? Cause at the end of the day, you know, the benchmark for a successful project is really, really how that plan gets interpreted and built and, and the end user experience for that. Correct. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. I mean, so you have, you have just crazy examples like Kayuna, right? Which is a great trail system when that first went out to bid and it was a, like a pipeline company won the, won the contract. You know, this is of course back in 2011. 12, right? No, Something it was like probably that. 2010 and or not, 10 or 11. 10, I, guess, okay, there we I think go. it opened to the public in, in 11 or 12. That's right. Because yeah, we were there for a visit for trail credit crew and it was already open. So yeah. So I you, went there. My first time would have been there would have been in 2012. Gotcha. Yeah. That was, I was there in 2011. And so, but it was on the ground. So that was, you know, still a story I use to this day with clients about why it's so, so critical to have language around contractor qualifications. Right. And so, and we've talked about flushing that out more too for this next round, uh, because that's, you know, it'll help everyone. It'll help municipal folks. It'll help us in the industry basically kind of know what's, you know, what's kind of expected if you're going to be, you know, bidding on building, you know, like a jump line, for example, or whatever. So things like that are super risky, right? If turning someone loose for the first time building a jump line that doesn't, isn't kind of seasoned with that, doesn't understand really the risks and liabilities. And, you know, there's just so much, as you know, there's so much more that goes into professional trail building than just, you know, local grassroots, just folks out in the woods building, which I've done too, right? So, you know, when you're literally just thinking about, I want a cool roller and I want to kind of, you know, a berm to carve, you know, you're not thinking about like liability insurance and someone getting injured and someone getting sued and, you know, just really making sure that you have a good broad experience for all skill levels where people can progress and grow and kind of stay challenged, uh, but still say, stay safe is not, you know, within risk tolerances, right? So safety is always kind of a 
tricky word in our industry, but so within risk tolerance, there's always some risk tolerance for it, but yeah. And I actually had the, I don't know if it was good or bad, but experience of, I was an expert witness on a lawsuit uh, for a ski resort bike park back in, oh man, I don't know, 2015 or something. And going through that process, like really opened my eyes. There was, I'm not going to mention any names, but it was, it was a ski resort, had a summer operation. They had changed the feature from being rollable to being questionably rollable. And so that was a big part of the debate in the lawsuit. Um, and a seasoned rider that rode there every year, had season passes, had a house there, you know, first run of the season, hit the trail. The, the feature was different, flipped over, snapped his neck, paraplegic, I mean, quadriplegic, huge life changing, I mean, situation, right? So that was the, the crux of the lawsuit. And should it have been signed that there was a change to a feature, right? And was it something that was rollable now was basically required some, you know, some drop skills for the most part. So those kinds of nuances and what kind of ramifications it can have, you know, to someone that gets injured like that versus then the ski resort now that's under a big lawsuit and they ended up settling. I don't know what for, but, but go through that process, getting grilled in depositions. And so Tony Boone was on the opposing side for me. <laughs> so, which was kind of wild because I was on the, prosecution side, which was a little sketchy, maybe. And then Tony Boone was on, on the defense side. So going through that process, like I never want to go through that process again and really don't want clients to have to go through that process. And so these are the kinds of things that's really hard to convey to like builders coming up that are maybe building locally with no like oversight and, you know, no actual accountability, right? I mean, how do you, there's just so much that happens in our industry that if you're going to be a professional builder, there's so much that's outside of just building the trail, that's really hyper important and critical for us to be professionals in industry, but also to be responsible stewards of the land, you know, be responsible in awareness of what we're leaving someone to manage. Right. So yeah, that's, that's a, it's a big topic too. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's the, you know, something to manage it. You know, I always, the thing that pops into my mind is then maintenance and, you know, and selling a, you know, we're going to, maybe we'll say selling dirt jumps to a local municipality may not have a full grasp of what maintenance on something like that would look like. And you brought up earlier, like a, a sweet manicure jump in a magazine or in a video might look great, but like the long-term maintenance of that is not what people expect. Yeah, that's definitely, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a challenging, like with gap jumps, like, right. So for the most part, most builders are, you know, moving away from gap jumps, except in kind of like, you know, unique situations just because of the risk, you know, the risk profile goes up dramatically. Right. And so I think the Walton family foundation is really moving away from gaps too. Um, like on the UCI course, right. They had those gap jumps, which they ended up having Andy built a really super cool, like custom steel gap fillers, which was super awesome. It was beautiful work by the way. So big shout out to Andy. I love working with Andy and what's that? It was a good outcome, you know, good solution. Oh yeah, totally. So, so things like that. And so, you know, but as like municipalities are kind of, I see kind of part of my mission working with especially new municipalities is to help prevent them from making those mistakes in the first place. You know, not the gap jumps are a mistake, but it's a really challenging situation to drop in the lap of a municipality, especially if they don't know what they're getting into. Because even if you try to explain it, it's really going to not be super easy to grasp unless someone's dealt with lawsuits and things like that, right? Like to really understand the ramifications of what you might be giving them. So. And that's always, it. I think it's a kind of, I wonder if it's a conversation that we basically have in our industry that other industries don't deal with, because I don't think you really get like local grassroots people offering to build basketball courts for cities, right? <laughs> I mean, so 
it just doesn't really everything else there's you know court building firms and you know and things like that whereas in ours so many people are volunteers right and start building trail and loving it and want to basically grow and and then turn it into a business there's a lot so there's so much to it though that for it to be a business and to be professional you know and we're all representatives of the industry whether we like it or not what we do or don't do or we leave out right whether intentionally or unintentionally all of it kind of comes back to and has a it has blowback potential on us. Things start getting shut down, word gets around, and you can get municipalities spooked about things across the country, right? And so, you know, it's really it's on all of us to really to understand these things and take them into account when we plan and design things. Because as you know, right, like rogue trail building, always a hot topic. A rogue building can have ripple effects for years. So a quick segue. So like I'm living in Del Rio now, small town with no trails. So I'm doing a citywide trail vision. I'm approaching every agency here, trying to get some traction uh, to do projects. And so I approached National Park Service. They have beautiful land at our lake. We have the like, second largest man-made lake in Texas. Incredible technical terrain, um, which could be phenomenal. And I kid you not, one of the first things out of their mouth was, well, we gave mountain bikers access to one of our properties like 10 years ago when they started road building, we had to shut them down. And so, and that's like 10 years ago, you know, and but that's very fresh in their mind because you know especially national park national park service we live in a very archaeologically rich area too so you start rogue building you're potentially getting cultural sites archaeological sites you know sensitive water zones and there's just so many reasons why rogue building just can have such harmful blowback on us this is relevant to some stuff i'm going through currently with um some projects so it's kind of probably good we're having this conversation um like my first real exposure to this was Sedona. So Trail Kid Crew, 2011 or 12, I forget which year it was, Forest Service. And it was, their road building was crazy out there. They just had literally guys like in the middle of the night building, like multiple guys, different locations. And the Forest Service tried everything in the book, like working with them, trying to like, you know, take them to court and then banning them from the forest, from access to the Forest Service for multiple years and fines um, to basically nip that because, you know, it, I mean, I, I'm going to say I support that, you know, it's because and this is really, really a sensitive topic, but, you know, because basically if you're rope digging, right, you're basically trespassing and you're, you know, vandalizing. I mean, because if someone came into like my yard and started digging, I mean, they're trespassing, they're vandalizing. And just because it's public property doesn't mean we as the public can do what we want with it. That's why we have agencies which are stewards of that land, which is why we have a process to go through as, as painful as it may be, as slow as it may be, right? Yeah. Oh, this is. We might probably get some comments on this section. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Good, yeah. It's good to get that perspective because it is important. You know, it's, it's how a lot of people have gotten things done and it's good, bad, or otherwise. Um, again, it goes back to the professionalization of the industry. And if we want to be taken seriously and want goods and we want to have a good experience for the general public to have, we got to start out on the right foot, which is with good planning design and implementation, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I get the argument that, you know, because part of the problem, part of the challenge is like a lot of the ropes that they've got built got accepted, right? They can, you know, municipalities just adopted it. And so, and that's a tricky, that's a tricky thing to do because it almost kind of fuels the fire. You know, it's a reward almost. And it's so, like, oh, we got it done and faster. Almost, yeah. And so uh, there's a, there's a project I'm recently involved with where basically the municipality shut down the rope trails. There was a big uproar in the community. They applied political pressure, got it reopened. And now I'm already seeing like, so 
the bulk of the park is not open to bikes. Like no bikes allowed. It's only in this back part of the park where rogue trails got built. And so now they're, what's happening is people don't know the rest of the park isn't bikes. So they're going to be in the main parts of the park on bikes because they're coming in through these rogue trails. And so I, I'm really just kind of waiting. I'm, I'm curious how long it's going to stay open before they reshut it down. I can't imagine it staying open if that continues because, you know, and so, but the challenge is also, right, this is consuming a lot of resources from that municipality, that parks department. So they're having to now monitor and police, you know, and, and then deal with the legal side, the political side, all of this time that they're spending trying to manage the situation where someone is basically trespassed and, you know, digging trails in their property unsanctioned, whereas they could be basically advocating, you know, planning projects going forward because we've got five projects and now there's a lot of distraction on this one particular project because of this situation. So yeah, it's a really, it's a really challenging topic for sure. Yeah. I was just going to say how awesome would it be if those resources are being consumed in a positive way for trail planning design and then ultimately construction and use. Yep, exactly. So, and I get it. It's just tricky because there's like, you know, there's another city in our region that, you know, one city is like just going gangbusters. Their park staff, they went to trail labs. They're in San Antonio, right? They're doing lots of projects. I and mean, it's just amazing, like, to have five bike park and trail projects going on simultaneously, you know, outside of Bentonville, it's pretty unheard of, right? And so, but then, you know, Austin, where I spent the past 18 years, there's just getting pro projects for planning design or build is, it's been really challenging, almost, almost impossible. It's like kind of beating our heads against the wall for years and still having trouble with that. So, but also the Ridge Riders, Austin Ridge Riders have been super successful over the past 20 plus years, you know, getting relationships with land managers, clubs, building trail, right? And so, you know, they have a lot of great trail. And so I think that's also in some ways kind of potentially made that more challenging to convert to the pro model, right? You know, if a city is getting things for free all these decades, right? You know, they haven't really had to keep up with it, especially with the clubs managing maintenance and all these kinds of things. So um, but as it, you know, as the trust systems grow, right, that gets more challenging to manage the maintenance and keep volunteers engaged in doing that. And so, you know, I think they're kind of going through some some growing pains where they're realizing, you know, fundraising needs to be a little more prominent model too, uh, to kind of balance that out and to also start to try to start to try to push some of that responsibility back onto the parks. Right, these are huge assets that tons and tons of people are using in your parks, but yet you guys aren't funding any of the maintenance, any of the evolution, right? things like that. So even the simple stuff, of, like vegetation management, right? Like everybody mows a park, right? Like how many parks do you, city parks are there yeah. that aren't mowed, but then to get a, yeah, exactly, a you know, right? to get a weed whacker <laughs> to go down a trail to keep the corridor, maybe at three feet or four feet, you know, I, I'm talking not tread width, but you know, vegetation width. Right. Yeah. The corridor, the rideable corridor. Right. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how it's just kind of like, oh, Nope, we don't do that. And it's like, so, and I pitched that with, like, even with the here in Del Rio, like one of the, my first conversations with the city manager was, you know, when they said, yeah, we love this vision. We want to try to make this happen. It's like, okay, so just going to forewarn you, we're fully going to expect you guys to hire like staff to maintain trails, at, at least part-time initially when the first one gets built. And I don't, you know, I can't guarantee they'll, they'll do that or that'll happen, but I'm definitely, you know, encouraging municipalities to consider that, right? Because then you also, you have someone available all the time. You know, you can send them where you need them. You have a little more control um, and you're not burning out. You know, I mean, it's tough building a volunteer organization. And I really tried to avoid it here in Del Rio because I've seen, you know, 
working on the Joker crew and traveling the country, working with clubs all over the place. I'm like, oh man, man, setting up a club is a nightmare. <laughs> it's a huge, it's a huge endeavor. So, you know, I've always super impressed when I see really well-refined and run clubs that really just knock it out of the park. So people have asked, you know, people have asked me like, what do you do with volunteer attention? Like, how do you promote volunteer attention? And I say to them, and, and granted, there is a, there's a, there's both sides of every spectrum, but every spectrum, but I do say like the quickest way to lose a volunteer is hand them a weed whacker. And mm-hmm. some people are like, what? I really like weed whacking. And there are a few strange people out there, like, and myself included, right? Like I enjoy that. Cause I mm-hmm. get an immediate satisfaction of seeing that trail corridor now being what it is. But by and large, like you want to see volunteers not come back, just hand them a bunch of weed whackers and they might not come back. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. It takes take someone that's motivated or that someone that has a you know, recognition of the value of the asset that they're, they're being able to use, right? Because typically because a club built it or because a city paid to have someone build it. So, and I think that's, it's going to be a slow model, but I think it's what's happening now is more and more municipalities start off with professional planning, design and construction from the beginning. Um, I think that, you know, like I heard recently of a, um, what is it? Someplace South of Austin, who was Buda or Kyle, uh, where it, they kind of went to the other end of the spectrum. This parks department ended up buying an excavator, getting their guys trained on an excavator. And so they're going to have an actual excavator operator on staff from day one, which terrifies me because <laughs> I'm not like, and I'm dealing with an advocate going, okay, do they, does this person ride? Do they understand mountain biking trails? What's, what's happening? Because this is typically very rare, right? That, you know, they kind of go all in and say, well, we're just going to build our own trails. And it's like, okay, hold up, time out. <laughs> So, I mean, there's been some good models where that's how, like Marquette you know, was, has been real successful with that, where they have a, either a part-time or full-time excavator operator in the summer, and they've got a couple of locals that have the resources and the time to build and have worked long-term with Marquette. So, they get, a, I think they have two or three excavator operators that build a lot in Marquette, for example, you know, and they've made that work there. But that's, you know, something like a new city without a big riding pool and that would definitely scare me a lot. So, um, yeah. When you say Marquette, but, that's like the, the poster child of upper Midwest original core mountain biker, you know, community. So they've been, you know, it's been a mountain bike community for three decades now, which is kind of tough to believe or more. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that was, yeah, it's a really, really mature community. And I was, I mean, I spent, I think a week up there. I was teaching an ICP course, um, but ended up just hanging out, um, with Candy and her husband Doug at the time and got to ride a bunch of stuff. And it was just, mind-blowing you know all the trail they basically built themselves right yeah you know, such yeah a, mike burnett is a huge, too, huge so. proponent to that up there you know he's one of the one of the people you're speaking of and he's got a day job but he's a very good operator and it's yep. it doesn't work in every community you know some communities like i use knoxville as a, as a post-child community a lot because they're you know they're they have a, a high functioning trail org a good volunteer base they only have one paid person which is their or one full-time paid person, which is their executive director, but then they, you know, they, they, they fundraise a lot. They hire a lot of professional builders. They have professional builders that live in that community or at least winter in that community. Like, you know, Shaggy lives there night eyed from kingdom trails in Vermont and his crew will winter there, you know, so that, and there's other professional trail builders that live in that region that, you know, help make a community like Knoxville really good. Gotcha. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's, you know, kind of like, like you hit the nail on the head. That's kind of a unique situation. Well, Chris Kmeyer there too, right? I think. I think he's actually relocated there. So they have a lot of good planner oh, there too. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah, and it definitely makes a lot of difference in terms of having some, like for me moving to Del Rio, there's 
you know, I found out that trails were like a flagship part of the comprehensive plan for the city back 10 years ago, but yet nothing's really happened. And so, you know, but now that, now that I'm living here and there's someone here that kind of has background and experience and, you know, understands that industry and can actually, you know, knows how to make things happen. I mean, I think that's, I think it's partially why I'm getting a lot more traction now than probably I did in the past. And that's because I have that experience to draw on. And, you know, I think that probably translates to the city and counties and then to terms of confident confidence that, that I kind of know what I'm doing and won't lead them astray, hopefully so. Well, I forgot to add this topic, but I asked this question to almost everybody before we close this out. And I'm going to qualify it with this. If you had to move to another community for whatever reason, what are the things that you would look for in that community that would make it, I guess, uh, attractive to you to move to? And I'm talking specifically a trail community. You've traveled a lot. You've seen a lot. You've been literally around the world. Like, what are the ingredients that, yeah. that stick out to you? Um, for me, it's really, it's about daily rideability, not just to the trails, but to basically everything. Like, you know, and so Bentonville's, you know, it's probably an overused example, but like Hyun is a good example where like you can ride your bike from your Airbnb to the main drag. You can go have a beer, you can have coffee, you have food, roll over to the trails and ride, roll back, hit the Dairy Queen. I mean, having that to where you can basically be on your bike all day if you wanted to without having to get in your car and drive. For me, that's, that's probably one of the most important things. And, and there's a lot to that beyond just the trails, right? Pay pack and bike trails for that connectivity. And so, I mean, and that's why like for here with Del Rio, when I realized there was political will for some of these things, and when I drew up the trail vision for Del Rio, I made sure it included pay pack and bike trails that connected every major neighborhood. Um, you know, bike lanes are on there. And of course, natural surface trails, bike optimized, of course. And so having that to where people like, I think I'm like most people, I'm going to get home from work. I don't want to get back in my car and go drive somewhere to go ride or recreate, right? And so that for me is, is key. Minneapolis has done a great job of that too, right? With their Greenway, San Antonio is killing it with their Greenway. They're, you know, they're setting themselves up. So San Antonio, I don't know. So their, their goal was to build a loop all around San Antonio inside of 1604, which is the bigger outer loop, um, which is about 100 miles of trail. And they're only like 11 miles away from finishing it. And so, Kind of mind-boggling when you think about a city like San Antonio with millions of people to be able to pull that off in a very densely developed area, but it's it's bringing people out of the woodwork because now if you're if you're bringing riding to people's communities, you know they can just hop on they can go out for a walk or run, hop on their bike without getting back in the car. Three, that's that's the key. And so I'll give one other example to that too. So there's a project called the Great Springs Project, uh, which uh, their mission is to connect. Austin to San Antonio by hike and bike trail. And their primary mission is to basically protect the aquifer and the four springs on that route because of the massive amount of development. You know, we we're still we're South Texas, right? So we have water challenges. Um, but as it's they've got like 33 miles, I think done. They've adopted some existing, I think they'll be done by 2035. But what they're seeing is now that this is happening, all the communities that surround these areas are reaching out saying, hey, we want to connect into your artery, you know, and so they're seeing different developers come out of the woodworks, basically wanting to donate land to have these paved trails, right, go by or through their property, because obviously developers know that that's where people want to be. I mean, every focus group study you look at, like, and this happened here in Del Rio, we went through our comprehensive process with the city, went through our parks planning process for those master plans. Number one and number two items on all the surveys were parks and trails, right? And the first time I saw that on a project, personally, was in 2014 in Florida. A developer scrapped their golf course plans, 
and basically it pulled me in to basically do a concept plan. I was like, what, why are you guys doing trails? He said, well, all our focus group studies said they want trails. And so we scrapped the golf course plans and I was like, holy crap. Okay. All right. So, but that's, you see that all over. Like if you just Google like surveys for community surveys, parks and trails are always number one and two. And people want that connectivity. They don't want to have to be in their car driving. And so like here in Del Rio, part of my mission is basically like, I would much rather have 10 small little pump tracks in every neighborhood than have one big, massive, you know, bike park. Um, because for me, the way you change culture or evolve culture, right, is having stuff accessible to people on a daily basis. And so having stuff in their neighborhoods will get people on bikes, on skateboards, on scooters. And, you know, and so to me, that kind of resonates with how is your, what is your daily life like and what you can do without getting in a car drives a lot of that. So probably a long answer to your question, but no, it's, <laughs> a, perfect, was, it's a perfect answer. And you just reinforce the fact that trails are, are the new golf course, which I've said many times too. Definitely. And that was nine years ago that <laughs> yes. that came to you. Yeah, that was, yeah, 2000, yeah, that's right. Nine years ago, 2014. So that was like an eye opener for me. And I still use that reference to this day with clients too. So it was really cool to go through that process here as a local advocate in Del Rio and be a part of the comprehensive process, you know, comprehensive master plan, the parks master plan, and then to basically see the survey results come back identical, you know, nine years later in a town where there are no real, there's really no connectivity. There's like a, like an asphalt hiking loop in a couple of places, but there's not really connectivity between communities here yet. So, and so it just fully reinforces what people, you know, people want to be able to get out, walk, run, bike from their house. They don't want to have to get in a car and do that. So, well, Jake, before we close everything out, we offer the opportunity for any kind of closing comments and thank yous and people you'd like to acknowledge. And that list is probably super long. So you can say everybody if you want. <laughs> uh, well, of course, I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of reinforce like with the book, especially um, Renee Matson, who has been phenomenal. It was her idea to need a resource like this in the first place. Project took way longer than we ever envisioned. It grew into a much bigger effort than we all ever imagined. And so she was incredibly patient through the process. And I mean, there were multiple times where she could have easily like been like, that's it, we're done, we're pulling the plug. <laughs> um, and she kind of stuck with us. And so really, I can't thank her enough for that. And so, and still, even now she's, you know, approached her legislature and getting more funds to expand this because they want to grow this, right? We, so like we envisioned checklists and things like that for, to complement the book. So that to really create a full arsenal of checklists and other usable tools beyond like, you know, cause right now you have the, all the core content. We have some quick reference guide, which kind of tee that up, but to kind of move that forward. So, and then of course, you know, Aaron for being willing to take this project on at rock solid, a very like non-traditional project. And so he invested a lot in this, you know, beyond, you know, I mean, obviously Rockstar got paid, but there was a lot of time we invested where we weren't getting paid. And so, you know, hats off to Aaron for having that kind of that vision and that fortitude to kind of stick with that as well, too. Um, and then Mike Repiak, for sure, like no one else has as much blood, sweat and tears in this book as me next to like Mike. So like, especially once, you know, once Imba decided that they wanted to adopt this and be a co, you know, kind of a title sponsor, a co-sponsor on the book. You know, I mean, Mike really just dove in like head first and like took ownership at a level like I would would not have expected really anyone to do. And so, you know, I can't can't thank him enough for that. And he, he and I have been kind of friends and you know cohorts for probably the past five six years pretty heavily. And so, it's been really great getting to kind of work with him and kind of we bounce ideas off each other all the time because we kind of kind of do similar things. And so, but really great working with him on that and all the other contributors like Martha Beckton, like 
uh, and the environmental aspect is always still just like, uh, my, my eyes want to kind of gloss over when we have to talk about, you know, BMPs and controls and things. And so having Martha contribute in kind of those sections was, was vital because, you know, she just has a lot more knowledge in that area than I do as well, too. And other, you know, Trent, for sure, and Jim Schoberg spent a lot of time with me on the phone. Um, Shane Wilson, who was formerly with them, but now he's at his own consulting from Trailhouse. So um, I'm sure I'm missing people, but that's kind of the kind of the core around the book. And so since that was the focus, I'll stick with that for now. Well, Jake, as always, it was it was great to to catch back up. It's funny that you brought up Mike Repiak there at the end because literally I met you through Mike when we when you guys were in Winona doing some flagging. Oh, that's right. You know, back yeah. in it was November, I think mid to late November of twenty nineteen, you guys pretty much got snowed out, but those trails are that getting built bad, now. Yeah. I haven't been up there to see them yet, but you know, they're only 30 minutes up the road and there's Imba crews on the ground. And I believe there's even a rock solid crew on the ground there as well, currently building. And yep. that's a good example of a, what I call an arms race between communities and how it's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a arms race where everyone wins because it means more trail and, and better communities. And lacrosse kind of looks at Winona and look and Winona looks at lacrosse. <laughs> and it's just, everybody wins. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it's really great to see Winona getting built. I mean, because that's been a long time in the making. And I was on a, actually on a, um, so now that our Delrio Parks Foundation is actually an IMBA club member, I was on a call for local clubs just this week with IMBA. And someone from the club in Winona was on there talking about the project. And I was like, I didn't mention that I knew anything about it, but it was just really cool. Like, ah, yeah, I mean, that project's been such, such a cool site and such a cool property. Um, and a lot of challenges popped up with like with rattlesnake habitats and all kinds of things that slowed things down. So, um, and it's great to see Rock Solid and Imba doing that too. So that's one of my missions at Rock Solid was to really develop a strate- strategic relationship between Rock Solid and Trail Solutions, just because the two entities really complement each other so well, you know, with Rock Solid being so deep in the construction side and really pushing the envelope all the time and Trail Solutions with Mike really trying to press to evolve the professionalization of the planning and design world for us. So um, it was really, really great getting to kind of play that role with the organizations and to still continue working with Mike and seeing what they're doing. So yeah, great stuff. Yeah, for sure. And it's even the mayor of, of Winona, which I don't think, I mean, people in on the inside would know this, but the, the current mayor of Winona used to be a Niner rep. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Niner bike company. <laughs> so it's, when I saw him running for mayor, I was like, wow, this is, this is a, this is a new thing. You know, mountain bike, mountain bike reps yeah. are becoming, uh, becoming mayor. I mean, that's when you, I mean, you saw it early, kind of early on when people, you know, maybe a mountain biker got onto like elected to like a parks board or a city council position, mm-hmm. but now they're becoming like the true leaders within organization or within communities. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, and there's, um, well, okay. There was a story I was going to bring up, but well, so I'll bring it up. So you can cut it if, if, it's, if it's too long, but um, if it makes it, it makes it too long. But so one of the big kind of pivotal projects that was really a big influencer for me was um, really Hansi and Cogs and them in Duluth when they proposed the Duluth Traverse, right? So as a club, right, they basically had been trying to get permission to do little projects here and there. And then they decided we need to just put together a dream vision, right? And then present it. And then so they did that. They just said, let's, let's draw out our dream, pitch it to the mayor. The mayor said, I love it. It's infrastructure, right? So I can fund infrastructure better than I can fund like individual trail projects. Put up a million bucks to seed it, and then look what we have now. And so, really, that that project for me was a game changer in, in terms of also how I looked at projects and communities. And so, like to this day, that's what I've you know 
that's the model I was basically applying here in Del Rio, Texas, in our small town, is you know creating a vision that shows that connectivity because you know this this is probably good for listeners too because cities and city managers and city council people like that. So you know individual one-off trail projects are cool, but really when they can see things as infrastructure and that alternative modes of transportation and connectivity between parts, things like that, that's really, you know, part of all most cities' missions. It's also like, you know, most Department of Transportation's their missions are to develop that as well too, right? To reduce car time and all that kind of good stuff too. But so, you know, having that, and that's why we, you know, teed up that topic in the book is is developing a, you know, kind of a community-wide trail vision. So not a plan. But just a vision of like, hey, based on the different terrain and parks we have, we could have trails here, here, and here. We could have, you know, pump track here, jumps here, and just creating a vision that's more holistic than just one particular site to really, uh, like I found it, I think that's tends to be more impactful with city leadership as well, too, because they see like a bigger picture at that point beyond just, you know, some mountain bikers wanting trail, <laughs> you know, in one particular park. So something to kind of for folks to keep in mind out there. Oh, for sure. And those are, those long-term vision plans are becoming, you know, which is like you said, pre-planning and design, even pre-concept are becoming a, a more of an ask in this, in this industry. So that's awesome to see. Yep. Yeah. I know Trail Solutions has done multiple projects where they're doing like a full community wide, you know, I like your term pre-plan because we're really not, we're not planning projects. We're basically pre-planning to kind of pre-assess sites and what's suitable for different sites so that as, you know, as leadership moves forward, they almost have an inventory to pull from. Like if you've given, if you've got say 50 potential sites that could support something, you know, if something pops up, they go, oh, let's look at our vision map. Okay. Oh, well, we've got something here, which is within reach and it fits what you're asking for. And it's already been identified as something suitable. So it really, I think it can really facilitate the speeding up of things like that happening as well too. So, so I'm really pushing that with clients as well. Like, you know, let's do a, let's do a community-wide vision. These are, you know, to create kind of a roadmap. You create a, a potential roadmap for how they could proceed. So envision sounds a lot better than feasibility. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It sounds a little more fun. <laughs> cool, Jake. Well, let's wrap this thing up. I, I really appreciate your time today yeah. in this and and you taking time out of your day so we can pull this one off and we can share this with the with all the listeners and the masses because this is the type of stuff that really helps get more trail built in our world, right? Yep, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for you know for inviting me on and taking the time to talk. And so really great to, to see you again as well too. So, and talk about the book and go from there. So look, hopefully we get to cross paths out in the field somewhere soon. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who've taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect Podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect Podcast, check out the affiliate links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. Mm-hmm.